Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 35. Today is Tuesday, May 9th, and it's about 3 o'clock on the beautiful left coast of the United States. Today will be a fairly short uh, podcast after all the excitement of May 3rd with the probably last uh, FOMC hiking decision. Just three topics. Uh, The first one is a continuation of what I mentioned last week real briefly about time horizons of investment markets. Uh, We'll look first at public equities markets. And And the general wisdom, and I think this usually holds, is that public equities markets look about 12 to 18 months out to determine what the price of a, of a stock should be. Now, there are times when the markets look much further out. For instance, if a company announces that it's, there's been a secular shift in its market and its growth, instead of being 22% a year, will be 15% a year, then you will see a, a longer period that investors will look at to really punish that stock, and often I have friends of mine ask, well, "Why did why did it go down thirty five percent when when the the long term forecast dropped seven? And, and the answer is really something called discounted cash flow, right? In theory, you're you're taking the discounted cash flows going about out about ten years. Sometimes people take it out to up to twenty. Beyond twenty is pretty pointless because by the time you discount a twenty year future cash flow back to the present, there's not really much left of it, regardless of how big the amount was. So you got a certain period of time, you discount those cash flows, that gives you a value, and then uh, you have the the price of the stock, which in theory uh, will be equal to that value given the number of shares of stock outstanding. Um, <laughs> that's the theory uh, as, as equity markets are very much subject to fads and and nowadays to memes and to just general panic or exuberance, animal spirits as it's been called recently, often you get away from that strict price earnings ratio, but but that is really the basis of it. So what you have what we have here is in a aside from those extremes where you have a, a change in fundamental long-term guidance, Really, uh, most traders look about 12 to 18 months out. But one of the things that I noticed at different times when there were different crises, and then it really finally came to me during the COVID crisis, is there's actually not quite a mathematical, but nearly mathematical explanation for what happens to that time horizon during crises. And you can view it as people panicking just in general or something like that, but I think you can actually view it through a different prism, and that is what happens during a crisis is the time horizon shortens. So the bigger the crisis, the shorter the time horizon. So if you look at, say, March of 2020, when there was the, the two days, I believe, of tremendous drops in the S&P, and it stayed down for a while, people were panicking, and their time horizon got down to probably 12 to 18 minutes as opposed to 12 to 18 months. If, on the other hand, during that period of very short time horizons, you have the wherewithal to not jump uh, on that bandwagon or not join the lemmings going over the cliff. You can take a look at the longer time horizons, reach rational investment decisions, and end up doing very, very well. 
specifically during that crisis, the, the family office that I managed, at my suggestion, we took a rather large uh, S&P uh, index position, long position. And I don't remember all the details. It was something like 80% we made in three weeks. And, you know, that's not tremendous. You can do a lot better than 80% in three weeks if you crank the risk up a little bit more. But we were able to do that just doing straight up, uh, straight up options, not a lot of leverage. And we're, we're very happy with it. It's, and the reason for that is everything got hammered during that crisis, whether it was related to COVID, related to work from home, related to health, or not. Everything got killed. And we took a very broad brush approach and just bought the S&P. Uh, some stocks probably still haven't recovered from that, from those levels, but it's very few, and the vast, vast majority have done well. So the, the time horizon shrinks, and the better you are as an investor, the less you will shrink your time horizon. In fact, you will continue to look at least 12 to 18 months out. If the crisis isn't quite so desperate, take a look at the S&P, or not the S&P crisis, take a look at the banking crisis. I'm going back too far. Uh, savings and thinking of savings and loans, sorry. But if you look at the uh, banking mini crisis, if you will, of March and April of this year, when you had the four banks, well, Silvergate went, decided to go out of business, but Signature, uh, SFB, FRB, they actually were taken over by uh, the FDIC and sold. If you, if you look at those crises, people were looking very short term. It wasn't like March of 2020. People were not looking at what happens in the next 12 to 18 minutes. But I think it's fair to say people are looking what's happening over the next 12 to 18 days. And if you were a client of that bank, particularly in the case of SVB, where you had social media and hedge funds broadcasting to the world, pull your money out, it probably was indeed a 12 to 18 minute crisis or even less, the 12 to 18 second crisis. But for the rest of the world, it really shortened the time horizon and that presented some fabulous buying opportunities. We didn't take advantage of any of them either personally or in the family office I run, but take a look at something like PacWest, which got decimated. Uh, some people expected it to follow in the shoes of FRB, except PacWest didn't have the outflow of, uh, of deposits. PacWest did not have a, a relatively narrow niche uh, from which it received its deposits. In the case of FRB, it was very wealthy individuals who had very portable money. In the case of F SVB, it was the venture capital space. In the case of Signature and Silver Lake, it was crypto, although that doesn't entirely describe Signature. That was a bit more of a, of a multifaceted situation. But nevertheless, PacWest doesn't have this uh, a narrow segment that is immediately going to pull all of its money simultaneously. And you would have done extremely well if you bought PacWest at the low. And that's because, you know, I guess the phrase is, the old phrase is throw the baby out with the bathwater. But it really is the entire sector got taken down. There is an index that tracks regional banks and that index was demolished. Even if you didn't know which banks were good and which banks were bad, buying that index at the low, something you could predict that obviously, would have been an absolutely uh, excellent investment. So from an investment skills standpoint, when there is a crisis in one company or one sector, almost always investors paint with a very broad brush 
and drag down related companies and related sectors that are doing just fine. And you often see this, there, there's a whole subset of investing that is really built around this, this thesis. What I call it in the family offices, we're putting together blood in the streets money, which is from an old uh, Rothschild quote in the 19th century. And you want to have money sitting on the side available or easily liquidatable so you can invest it when there is some fundamental mispricing, fundamental misallocation because one company or one sector is getting dragged down unjustifiably with another. The second topic is one related to inflation, which I found very interesting and which is directly related to the FOMC decision last week. And that is inflation in the digital economy. So when I saw this statistic and I thought, hmm, I wonder how big the digital economy really is nowadays as a percentage of GDP or as a percentage of sales. So I did a little bit of digging around. Last year, online sales for the first time broached $1 trillion. So it's just over, just a smidge over $1 trillion of all online sales. But if you look at a little bit more broader uh, index, that is a gross output, there was $3.7 trillion of gross output in 2021, and that's the most recent data available that was attributable to e-commerce. You'd expect that nowadays, given the growth on the sales side where statistics are available much quicker, that you would expect that to be well above $4 trillion right now. And that is just over 10% of the U.S. GDP. And it's really quite amazing. In a relatively short period of time, you know, e-commerce has been around if you really, really push it 20 years, but it's only been really big for probably half that, it's really quite amazing. Uh, so one, and, and if you keep looking at the data, about 1.24 trillion of compensation and 8 million jobs are directly attributable to the digital economy. And that brings me back then to this statistic I really stumbled across, and that is the prices of goods sold online fell 1.8% in April. And interestingly, it's the eighth consecutive month of decline. And so very positive inflationary news. 10% of the economy, you have eight consecutive months of declines. There's an argument that online goods are not effectively included in the CPI. In other words, the CPI is built entirely to the extent it's talking about goods, and there are other things that are that are not goods, like like rents, for instance, that are included in the CPI. But to the extent that goods are included, it's almost all goods that are purchased in stores. So there's an argument that online goods are underrepresented, and if that's the case, at least given the over the last eight months, inflation is probably less than the headline figure that we've been all reading about. I'm not saying that's the case, but there are some people who think that's uh, a decent argument. And to some degree, you have to give credence to that because the CPI is really always behind in terms of its structure. Buying habits, purchasing habits evolve. They change all the time. The markets change. Preferences change. And you and the CPI has to change along with those. You don't want, on the other hand, to change the CPI every month because then the statistic becomes essentially meaningless. But over time, as a as something proves it's not a fad, it's actually a structural change, then you want to adjust the CPI accordingly. And that happens periodically. The question is now, perhaps 
it would be appropriate to include more of the online economy in the CPI. And if one were to do that, the odds are that inflation would drop very slightly. So an interesting food piece of food for thought for the as our second point. The third and last point is revision of statistics. It was actually something that uh, was brought to my attention. I mean, I've followed revisions of statistics for, for decades, but it turns out that makes me a bit of an, an oddball. Uh, and I was bringing it up to some uh, people I work with, my coworkers in the family office, and they'd never heard of revised statistics. And it turns out that unemployment, uh, rather employment numbers, were revised radically, or not radically, quite significantly for March because the employment numbers come out immediately and then they're often, they're often revised once and sometimes twice as our GDP numbers, for instance. And the, the fact of the matter is it's only the initial number that gets a lot of attention and not the, uh, the revised number. So I dug it and that really, the two numbers where it really ha- is important are unemployment and GDP numbers. Although any growth number, any statistic that's issued by the U.S. government is subject to revision if it significantly changes. So there was a huge change, again, in, in March, a shift of almost 100,000. And uh, that's important. Yet, by the time that hits, everyone's looking at not what March was, but what April is going to be. So I, I found a very interesting paper that show that talks about the statistical significance of revisions. So historically, they're not particular, particularly significant. They're about, uh, it's about 12,700 jobs that an adjustment is made. Now, if unemployment growth is very low, at 15,000 jobs, 12,000 can be very significant, but usually, uh, usually it's not. There is one interesting aspect to it. In a growing market, there is usually uh, about an 18,100 underestimation of employment. So in a bull market where employment is growing, it usually grows faster than the initial statistics show. On the other hand, where there is a recession or a very soft market, the initial employment numbers are liable to be overestimated by about 21,000 jobs. And uh, uh, this is not video, it's only audio. I'm looking at, a, at two fascinating charts which basically show that in bull markets there are fairly consistent uh, revisions and during recessions they're all over the place and they're very consistent. You almost always have a significant revision during, uh, during a recession and usually they're significantly less than what's initially announced. So I wouldn't draw any conclusions from this, like, for instance, you should always assume that, that uh, unemployment statistics are overstated in a, in a recession. But the conclusion I draw from this is one should really be a bit skeptical of the initial statistics, particularly if they're fairly low. If it's 300,000, you're looking at a 20,000 revision. For most people, that's not really going to matter. But if the statistics are low, you're going to see a revision that will be very statistically significant, and you should take it with uh, a grain of salt. Um, and I'm going to do some further research into whether GDP revisions are all that significant or not, but the immediate numbers in any case are probably not going to be the most accurate. 
And with that, that ends uh, Out on a Limb, episode 35. Thank you very much for your attention and hope you have a great week.